many years ago, uh, as I think back now, it's probably 10 years ago, um, when I was still in seminary, I had a friend from Nigeria. His name was Joseph. Um, and we would do this thing where each morning we would um, meet up at seminary before classes began. So classes began at about 8, 8.30. So we would get together at 7 a.m. each morning for devotion and prayer and uh, to sing some psalms. And that was a really good you know, period. Uh, that was a really good way for us to kind of focus our hearts and our minds uh, before the, the business of the day. Now, this friend of mine, at the time, he was renting a room in a house that was owned by a Chinese couple. Um, now, oftentimes when he and I would get together in the morning to pray, he would talk to me about the arguing, the fighting, the things being thrown around, and even the abuse that was happening in the house between the Chinese couple. It just so happened that this Chinese couple, both husband and wife, they were also seminarian students in the same seminary. I wasn't friends with them. I knew of them. I knew who they were, but I wasn't you know, friends with them. Um, the, the, the wife had graduated seminary a few years before I came to seminary, and the husband at the time was, uh, was a PhD student. Um, and my friend who rented, was renting a room from their house would tell me often of the fights, the, the violent fights, the, 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 the hitting, the, the stuff throwing around uh, that was going on in their house, and we would pray for them. Um, it just so happened also that the, the husband, who was a PhD student, uh, he was also a big-time speaker or minister in the Chinese church community in Philadelphia. The Chinese, church in, the Chinese church community in Philadelphia is not that large. So when, uh, th when there's a conference going on, when there's a retreat going on in one of the churches, there's not many. Okay, e basically everybody knows about it. All right, and, and so this husband was uh, doing a lot of speaking uh, at major conferences, and he was a big, uh, teacher or minister in the Chinese church community. Um, his field, ironically, was in shepherding and counseling. Um, and he was often invited to speak at these conferences and retreats. Uh, in preparation for today's sermon, I went back on his Facebook. You know, I, I'm not friends with him, but just, just to look. And he's still doing the same thing. Um, today, he's the director of shepherding. At a big time, uh, there's one Chris, big Christian organization uh, that's like a huge resource center for all the Chinese churches in Philadelphia. And he's the director of uh, shepherding there. Um, if you look on his social media, all of his photos are basically a who's who of the big names in the Chinese church. As we come to today's text, the question we want to ask is, okay, we've got all these qualifications for elders and deacons, right? Today we're covering deacons. The question we've asked and asked and asked, you know, these qualifications are not hard to understand, 
right? I, I figure any church that reads them, any Christian that reads them, it's pretty clear what they say. Everybody knows this. I think even common sense would tell us that you can't have an abuser uh, be an elder or a deacon, uh, you know, among many other things. But I guess the question is, how do we know? How do we know? Obviously, this guy has managed to keep it secret, keep it hidden for many, many, many years. How do we know? Um, I would even venture to say, if I brought it up as an issue with the Chinese churches, I would get attacked. And they would come to his defense because he's doing such wonderful things. And I would be the one that's in the wrong, okay, for, for trying to follow God's word. But the question is, how do we know? How do we know before we make somebody an elder or a deacon? So that's what we're going to talk about. The, the scripture actually gives us uh, two very uh, practical ways that we can tell, okay? Uh, if only we would be willing to follow scripture. If only we would be willing to follow scripture and not skip over scripture. You know, I think what happens with a text like this is we know it up here, but we rarely practice it, actually practice it before we uh, make somebody an a elder or a deacon. So today we're going to talk about how do we know. Uh, before we do that, there is one uh, final qualification. Last Actually, last week, we, we discussed verse 8, where we talked about some of the qualifications of deacons. And we talked about you know, what it meant to be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Okay? Uh, before we talk about how do we know, there's actually one other qualification for a deacon, and that's in verse 9. A deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. All that means is a deacon must be well-versed in doctrine. They must be faithful to God's word. Now you might say, well, that doesn't sound like it because you, they've got to hold the mystery of the faith. You know, mystery sounds mysterious, right? Sounds like a, a deacon has to be one of these new age spiritual gurus with this higher knowledge or higher enlightenment that, that, that nobody else can understand and, and he's got to kind of you know, guide people to this higher level of thinking or higher level of spirituality or life. Uh, and not, that's not the case. The biblical word for mystery in the Bible, the word for mystery consistently is used to represent the good news that was in the Old Testament hidden from people, but now has been revealed fully in Scripture in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the biblical idea of mystery and our idea of mystery is very different. Our idea of mystery is something mysterious. Uh, the biblical idea of mystery is something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed to everyone, to all of us, to his church. For example, Jesus in Matthew 13, verse 11. Jesus, this is after Jesus talks about the parable of the seeds and the sower. 
And the disciples are like, well, why do you talk like that all the time, Jesus? Like, why, why do you talk in parables all the time? Like, why can't you just say what you mean? And this is what Jesus says. Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Okay, so Jesus there is using mystery in the biblical way of saying uh, this biblical teaching, it's hidden from some people, but it's revealed to you. Okay, and it's also in that same uh, text that Jesus says, you know, kings and princes have long desired to, to, to see what you have seen, but you have it. It's been revealed to you. So biblical mystery is always something that was once hidden, but now is revealed in scripture, in Christ. It's not mysterious. And again, it's not uh, some sort of new age spirituality. Uh, when you go around, in, especially in today's American culture, uh, that kind of new age, amorphous, unknowable, higher enlightenment kind of spirituality, you know, this new age guru, that, that's really popular. And that sells a lot. You know, one of the reasons why yoga is so popular is not just because of the exercise. It's not just because of the exercise. Okay, it's because of the mantras and the chants and the ideas that 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 you that they teach you you know that it but all of it is is un, this type of new age spirituality that's kind of a mysterious and amorphous and kind of floating out there that's really hard to know okay that's not the biblical word for mystery um mystery is revealed mystery for example even in our text in chapter three later on in chapter three uh, if you look at verse uh, 16, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, okay? There, the Bible talks about the mystery of godliness, right? And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. But then the very next sentence says, God was manifested in the flesh. So basically, the Bible even says godliness, right? It, it puts out a, a question. Godliness, you know, how do we, how does someone be God, you know, what, what does godliness mean? How does somebody be godly? It might appear to us to be a great mystery, doesn't it? But then, but, but the Bible gives an answer. Well, really not because God was manifested in the flesh. We see godliness through the person of Jesus Christ. That's easy. It's revealed. You want to know what godliness is? Look at the life of Christ. Look at what he did. You know, that's godliness. Colossians 1.26 uses the word mystery in the same way as a revealed mystery. There, Colossians 1.26 is talking about God's word. And it describes God's word in this way. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. Okay, so that's biblical mystery. God's word, which was a, a mystery that was hidden in ages and generations ago from, you know, in the Old Testament, but now has been revealed to his saints. And so biblical mystery is not how we think of mystery, not mysterious. Rather, it is revealed mystery 
basically it's scripture. So if a deacon is somebody to hold the mystery of faith with a pure conscience, basically we're saying a deacon must be somebody who knows his scripture, is faithful to scripture, knows his doctrine. Okay, maybe not on the level of a elder or teaching elder, okay, but at least the basics. Okay, the days of creation, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, faith alone, right? Um, the life and the works and the sacrifice of Jesus, you know, the basic tenets of, of our doctrine. Uh, we read Acts 8 about Philip, right? A, a pretty well-known story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip does wonderful things, right? He, 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 he knows the scripture well because the eunuch is reading from Isaiah and Philip basically explains what that part of Isaiah means. You know, sometimes I read that Acts 8 and I put myself in Philip's shoes and I'm like, what would I say? You know, what would I say in a, in a short amount of time and be convincing enough that the, that the Ethiopian eunuch would be at the end, be like, huh, let's get baptized. <laughs> and, you know, I'm seminary trained and I'd have to think about it, right? I'm, I'm sure we would figure out some way to, to, to explain that part of Isaiah. But, but Philip was equipped. He knew how to explain that part of Isaiah. He knew scripture well. He knew his doctrine well. He was holding the mystery of the faith well. And remember, that Philip, that Philip is or was a deacon. Because in the previous chapter, he's one of the ones that uh, they appointed to be a deacon. Uh, we didn't use this example, but Stephen was also a deacon, right? And uh, he was appointed a deacon, and in the very next chapter, he's persecuted, he's stoned, right? But before he's stoned to death, he gives this great sermon about biblical history, about the Christ, okay? So Stephen held the mystery of faith well. So that's what a deacon should do. It's not just the elders who have to be able to teach and be faithful to the scripture. Deacons too. I do think it says something about the church that today when we read the account of Stephen and we, when, when we read the account of Philip, that we think elders must try to meet that standard. And we think, wow, they're great. They're beyond our standards for, for elders, right? Because they're such great preachers and evangelists and things like that. When the Bible says, no, they were deacons, I think it, it shows how, how, how we've watered down our, our standards today in our church. Okay, they, they, Those are deacons, not just elders. Those are deacons. All right. So those are the qualifications of deacons. Now we ask the question, how do we know? How do we really know? Uh, the Bible actually in the following verses gives us two very practical ways to know. First, the Bible says, somebody must be first tested. First test someone. Okay, verse 10. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Here, the, the little words and the prepositional phrases, they are key. Let these also first 
be tested. The word first is actually the Greek word protos. Protos. You guys ever hear of a prototype? When they're coming out with the new electric vehicles, but first they have to come out with a prototype. What comes first? The vehicle that goes on market or the prototype? The prototype comes first. Right? That, that's that word. First. Protos. It's the first. Which means we should test somebody first before they become deacons. Not the other way around, which is what I think a lot of churches do. Make somebody a deacon, then kind of put them through a probationary period. And then you've got a real pickle on your hands if they don't pan out. Then what do you do? Then it's a huge controversy, right? Did the spirit tell us to make him a deacon and then God changed his mind, right? No, that's not what you should do. It's very clear. You should test someone first before he becomes a deacon, not after. The word test, uh, it's a word that's commonly used in that time, in that period. It's, it was a word that was used to test metal. Uh, why do you have to test metal? Why, don't you, why can't you just look at a piece of metal and, and know what it is? Well, you need to test metal because back then they didn't have the instruments and all the you know, scientific ability to know what metal was what, right? And so for a piece of metal, it was unknown to them. So there were these various tests like temperature and color and you, know, you pour other substances on it and, and it, you know, whatever metal would, would transform into whatever other thing. And then you would know that this piece of thing was a type of metal, okay? Um, but basically, the idea of a test is to make known something that was unknown. To put it through various stresses and tests so that you would know what its quality and character is when before it was unknown. How do we know someone? How do we know somebody's character? How do we know if somebody doesn't have a secret addiction? How do we know if somebody is really reverent and not just reverent on Sundays when he has to? And then at home, he's, he's not reverent to his family. You know, how do we know? Well, you test them. You figure out the unknown. You put it through different stresses so you really know their character. Uh, there's an interesting part of the, the definition here. Um, the word test actually means to test something so that it can prove itself to be good. Okay, in the original language, this word has the idea of testing something so it can prove itself to be good. Uh, it does not have the meaning of testing something so that it disproves itself to be something bad. Okay, so that, so that word actually is a very positive word. It's a very constructive word. You're trying to see if this thing would hold up under the stress. You're trying to see if it's good. You're not trying to purposely cut it down and make it fail. All right? Uh, we know that God does not test us or tempt us in that way. He doesn't tempt us to sin. And neither should we. So if we are testing somebody to see if they have the qualities of a deacon, uh, we're not trying to cut them down and, and purposely make them fail. We're not setting up a trap, right? We're just 
trying to help them show us that they are of good quality. Okay, so, so I, I thought that was very interesting about that word. It, it's a constructive word. It's not a destructive word. First, let them be tested. Then, let them serve as deacons. I, can't, I don't think you can get more clear. The word then means next. Um, in the original language, this was a preposition. The word then that was used when somebody wanted to, to, to give like instructions. Like when you make furniture, when you go to Ikea and you buy furniture, it'll tell you step by step, first do this, then do this, then do this, then do this, okay? That's the word in, in the original language. It's the, it's the word for when you want to give somebody steps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's a sequential word. So there's no doubt the Bible says, first, let them be tested, then make them deacons, not the other way around. Again, what I've seen in many churches is actually they, they reverse this, this, this order. They'll make somebody a deacon based on their quote-unquote resume without really testing them, just but based on you know, how accomplished they are in education, in the business world, in life, or whatever. Okay, they make them deacons, they nominate them, they vote on them, and nobody has any idea about this person because they've not been tested in the church. And then they test them, and then, <laughs> and then trouble happens. Uh, when in fact, the better example is what we read in Exodus 17. Uh, when we read Exodus 17, this was... This is actually the first time that the name Joshua appears in the Bible. Okay, Exodus 17 is the first time we hear of this guy Joshua. Of course, we know Joshua was the person who took over as the leader of Israel after Moses. Okay, but realize from Exodus 17 all the way until the book of Joshua, Joshua was in training for that long of a time under Moses. He was Moses' assistant. Okay, I'm not saying Joshua was a deacon. I'm not saying that, okay? But Joshua was under training under Moses for such a long time before Moses said, okay, now you're ready to be a leader. Also, in that part in Exodus, did you catch that when we read it? After Joshua defeats the Amalekites, Moses, God told Moses, write what happened as a memorial and read it to Joshua. Why? Why does Moses have to write it as a memorial and read it to Joshua? Why, does, why don't you just read it to everybody? right? Why specifically read it to Joshua? It's because God wanted Moses to train Joshua. This is intentional. It's not an accident. right? God had a plan. He wanted Joshua eventually to take over, but got to train Joshua, not just in battle, but in faith. right? Write this as a memorial and read it to Joshua. Because Joshua has to know that it was by faith that you won the battle, not by, you know, your military might. That's the good example that the church should follow for deacons. So how do we know? First, you test him. Second, you examine his fruit, especially his fruit with his family, right? If a deacon is to be a servant of the needs of the church, then... Look at how he's a servant at home with his family first, okay? Um, it talks about wives. In verse 
11. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanders, temperate, faithful in all things. Uh, we've talked about some of these terms before. Reverent means uh, dignified, respected, someone with dignity, someone who is respected by others. But in order to be respected by others, you have to be respectful of others, right? You give respect to gain respect. Okay, so the wife of a deacon must be reverent. Uh, the wife of a deacon cannot, should not be slanders. Uh, this is a very interesting word. Uh, when we think of slander, we think of gossip, right? Uh, backbiting, gossip, uh, you know, talking bad about somebody behind their back. And to be honest, unfortunately, uh, we don't think that bad of gossip. We think of gossip as, well, it's bad, but it's not as harmful as other, some other sins that might go on. The Greek word for a slander is diabolos. All right? It's the Greek word diabolos, uh, which is where we get our word for devil, Satan. Which makes sense because Satan is the father of lies. It's diabolical. Gossip is literally diabolical. Right? To falsely accuse or unjustly criticize someone, especially behind their back, uh, the Bible is very clear. That's not a light thing. The wife should not be a slander. Obviously, men should not be slanders. Okay? Men should, nobody should be gossiping. But I will say this. You know, oftentimes, we've talked about this before. Oftentimes, the Bible has slightly different commands to men and women. Okay, it's not, and it's not saying one is a sin for one to do and one's not a sin for the other to do. They're all sins. Okay, but why? Why does the Bible pinpoint women, you know, for, for slandering? I think the reality is it's more of a temptation for women to engage in gossip than men. That is a fact in my office where I work. You know, uh, the, the, the male coworkers that I sit with, we rarely gossip. But then with the women coworkers, it's like every other day. Um, so God isn't being sexist, uh, but he is just pointing out the particular frailties of each gender that he's created. He knows because we are his children. He knows one struggles more with this and one struggles more with that. Okay. Wife should be temperate. Uh, simply meaning not intoxicated, not addicted to anything, any influences. The wife should be faithful in all things. All things meaning faithful as a wife, as a mother, as, the, as a sister in church. Of course, the question is, well, these are qualifications. I thought we were talking about qualifications for deacons. So, so why are we talking about wives now? Well, the, the, the idea is, The husband, the Bible says, the husband is the head of the wife. Uh, and when the Bible talks about being a head, it's not just in terms of authority. It means that. But it also, the head is the one that nourishes and cherishes the rest of the body. It, it, it's a shepherd. It's, it's a person that leads by example, leads by love, and, and a guide. Okay? Ephesians 5, 28, 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. If a man is being a good biblical head for his wife and his family, then the wife and the family are being faithfully nourished and cherished through God's word. Then, you, then it's like a plant, right? You have a pot of plant, and if you're nourishing it well and watering it well with God's word, if you're being a good head at, at home, then you expect that plant to, to grow into a healthy plant and to bear good fruit, the good fruit of being reverent, not slanderous, temperate, and faithful. Right? But if you're not watering that plant well, if you're not being a good leader at home, then you're not going to have good fruit from your family members. So that's the connection. Let me just say this as an aside. Uh, when the text says the deacon must be the husband of one wife uh, in verse 12, this is one of the biblical texts that show that deacons must be men. Okay, because the words husband and wife in the original language, these are gender specific words. Uh, no place do you, they're not generic words. Okay, in English, we have some generic words like the word everybody or uh, men, right? When our constitution says, uh, when our declaration of, uh, declaration of independence says all men are created equal, it's not just saying all men, right? As in males, uh, it's meaning everybody, males and females, everybody, okay? That's English. In English, we don't have so many words that are gender specific, all right? A lot of it depends on context. But in Spanish, you have words that are gender specific. Niño and niña. You would never use niño to point to a girl. You would never use niña to point to a boy, okay? In Chinese, we have the same thing. Uh, the word nan is the word for male, and the word nu is the word for female. And you would never use nu to point to a man, and you would never use nan to point to a woman. It's just not, doesn't happen, okay? It's the same thing here. The word husband is the Greek word for a biological male. And the word wife is the Greek word for a biological female. There are other Greek words that are more generic that can be translated as meaning everybody, like the word anthropos. The Greek word anthropos, we translate as man. And that can mean, in certain contexts, that can be just men, like biological males, or in other contexts, that could be everybody. Okay? Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, pray for all men everywhere. Uh, is God telling us to just pray for males? No. God is telling us to pray for everybody. Okay, so that word anthropos there can be broad in meaning. But here in chapter 3, the word husband means a biological male. It's not arguable. <laughs> and the word wife is a biological female. So it's very clear that deacons must be men. Okay, the text here doesn't say, you know, he must be the spouse of one spouse. It's not that generic. It's very specific and not just you know examine his fruit in regards to his wife right the our text ends with 
Let them rule their own children and houses well. Right? So you, we're also to look at how he rules his children in his house. Does he rule it well? That word rule might be a little bit scary because that conjures up images of, oh, well, you know, he's an iron fist, you know, dictator in the house or, or maybe like a far off CEO just giving orders and, you know, they, they do whatever. And, you know, if, if he's got that type of control over his house, then he makes a good deacon that, you know, and we, we get scared by that because how does that kind of person make a good deacon? How is that person a good father, right? Um, the word rule here actually means, uh, it's actually two words, and it literally means to stand before somebody, to stand before somebody. What that means is uh, to rule a household well means you stand before the household and you are a good example for them. Okay, that's what that means. Okay, you're not just giving them orders. You're not just talking the talk, but not walking the walk. But you're, 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 you're being a good example for your family. You're being a good model for your family to imitate. That's what that word means. It's a model. And it's, an, it's an example. You know, and that makes sense, right? A deacon's job is to serve the church's needs. And the Bible says, let this deacon rule his house well first. So if a deacon is supposed to serve the church's needs well, then that man must be a good servant in his house well first, right? How can you know how to serve the church well if you're not serving your house well as a model, you know, as a head in that way? You know, somebody who is just giving commands and ruling with an iron fist, that's not, that's not ruling well. That's not serving the house well. Uh, somebody who just says things, but never does it, right? You know, forgive your sister, love your brother, you know, but, but you're not loving to your wife and not forgiving. Uh, that's not somebody who rules well, okay? Because you're not living by example. You know, my son is two. And even when he is two, he will copy what I do. He will copy my behaviors. He will copy the things I say more quickly than do what I actually tell him to do. Okay. <laughs> and that's just fact. He, he, he picks up on, you know, uh, Today, when, uh, whenever the Eagles play and they score a touchdown, I'll play with him and I'll, and I'll do the gritty. I'll try to do the gritty. And he'll do the gritty. And I don't teach him. He just does it, you know, in his own little way. He just does it. I don't teach him. He just does it. But when I tell him, eat your food, eat your food, eat your food, he won't eat his food. Okay? But, 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 but he learns from my example. And so... I'm very aware of the, how fast he, he learns my example. So, so that brings me into a higher sense of responsibility. Isaac, you have to really be good, right? You really have to set a good example. And, it's, and you can't set a good example at home by being a double-faced person. You really have to change. 
You know, you really have to change. You know, you can't be mean to your wife, you know, in, in the bedroom or in private and decide in front of my son, I'm going to be nice and respectful to the wife, you know, to bring it full circle. Like you have to change. You have to change. This is why we concluded, uh, this is why I, I included Psalm 19 in our worship. You know, as we talk about these qualifications of deacons and elders, as we talk about how do we know, you, you first test them, you examine their fruit. You know, these qualifications are not simply, are not limited to, to commands for, for elders and deacons. They're there for all of us, right? They're for all of us. And I think at some point, all of us can admit, you know, Lord, we are not perfect. We all fail, right? We all fail in certain respects. Which is why I think Psalm 19 is such a good prayer for all of us, right? Psalm 19 begins with the psalmist reflecting on the wonders of God in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Then the psalmist reflects on the beauty of God's word. Right, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And then as the psalmist looks at God's word, then obviously the next thing is he realizes how far short he has fallen from God's word. Moreover, by them, God's word, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. I think that's where a passage like this, that's where it leaves us, right? We cry out to the Lord, Lord, I've fallen short. Cleanse me from secret faults. And then the psalmist prays like this, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength, my redeemer. That's that's not a throwaway word, phrase. My strength and my redeemer, right? Where are we going to get the strength to follow, to qualify from Him, right? And where are we going to find the forgiveness? He's going to redeem us. Okay. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, not just my actions in front of others, not just my public face, but my mouth and the meditations of my heart, who I truly am in secret. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. My strength, you will give me strength, and my Redeemer, you will redeem me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these uh, instructions, wonderful instructions that, that show us how pure and holy you are and how high of a standard, how, 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 how sober, how somber it is of a task to, to, to serve you and to serve your church. Father, we confess that uh, in, in many ways we also fall short of these standards. But Lord, uh, you indeed are our strength and you are our Redeemer. So help us, give us the grace, give us the grace uh, to serve you well. And not, not just in a, in, a, in a false kind of way, in, in a two-faced kind of way, but help us truly to be 
uh, men and women who, uh, whose words and the meditations of our hearts, uh, whose hearts and words and inner beings are, are, are pleasing in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.